Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanorkas. Welcome to our latest episode, which is a dedicated look at the cover feature topic for this week's Autosport magazine, and that is the McLaren Formula One team and the various additional projects the company is now embarking on. Much like our last issue and last week's podcast episode dedicated to the reviving fortunes of the Williams team, we are again dealing with one of F1's fallen giants. But as with Williams, McLaren is on an upward trend, but it's significantly further up the grid already as it prepares for the start of the new season. By clinching the lucrative third place in the 2020 Constructors' Championship, McLaren continued a results trend where it has risen from 9th and 30 points in 2017, its last season running Honda engines, to 6th the following year, its first season running customer Renault Power, then 4th in 2019, and finally that third place in the year just gone, where the team scored 202 points, took two podiums, and so nearly won the Italian Grand Prix. Heading into 2021, there's further change at McLaren as it returns to running the engines it should arguably never have given up as it returns to Mercedes customer status and Daniel Ricciardo replaces the outgoing Carlos Sainz Jr. alongside Lando Norris. So to discuss how McLaren got there and also have a look back at some of the best cars the team has produced in F1, I'm joined by two special guests. It's Autosport's chief editor Kevin Turner and our F1 reporter Luke Smith who also wrote this week's magazine cover feature. Uh, But Kev, coming to you first, a bit but oh, it's almost exactly the same question that I started the, uh, the the companion episode to the Williams cover feature with. Why did we want to take another look at McLaren's sort of ongoing quest to get back to where it, you know, where it should be in Formula One, judging by its past pedigree? As I said in the introduction, a, a fallen giant, fallen on hard times, but coming good again. But we've been here before. We, we you know, there, there's there's been plenty of talk about McLaren. You know, not won a race since 2012, no world title since 2007. Like, we have been here before, so why why have we come back again to have a look at McLaren? Well, I think this this it's a little bit like the same answer, really, to the same question with the Williams, uh, with the podcast and, and magazine. In that, I think there's some genuine, tangible reasons why you can argue uh, that McLaren is on the way back, and obviously they're further along that recovery than you know, Williams are. Williams kind of only got can only go one way, whereas McLaren are, they're getting to the crunch point now, like third in the constructors' championship last year was arguably overperforming. They probably had the fifth fastest car racing point. Obviously had the the penalty. We won't go into the whole pink Mercedes nonsense, but obviously lost 15 points. And I would argue had less strong driver lineup than McLaren had. And obviously had Ferrari falling falling away as well. Um, so they, But they took the opportunity. And if you think of where they were with uh, McLaren Honda, um, part you know, story two, um, they've come a long way in actually quite a short, amount of time um, once they realised once they got rid of Honda engines and brought the Renaults in uh, the Renault engine in and were still not competitive 
because for a while you remember all those lines from Fernando Alonso saying oh the chassis is as good as anything and we just need a good engine and all that stuff well it was proved to be not the case and I think that that then led to some proper soul searching and changes at the team and, and it's now got us or got them to this point um, and of course as we said in the Williams podcast 2022 regulations coming along which could help bridge that final gap uh, to well it's to Mercedes really isn't it um, and the final point is you, you talked about the Constructors' Championship improvement the position. They've also been getting closer in terms of pace. So each year they have got closer to the front, genuinely. And if you think of the step that Mercedes made with the W11, which I would argue is one of the most remarkable feats in recent motorsport history to extend that gap with the record they'd had going into the season, um, that's really that's really encouraging for McLaren. Um, so yeah, so I thought it was a it was a it was a good time to talk to to get Luke to, to talk to Zach Brown and um, and really see where they where they feel they're at. Indeed, and that, that was the point, the exact same point you made last week about Williams and its revival. Like It is real because they made a step back towards the front in a year when Mercedes delivered one of the best cars Formula One has ever seen. So very impressive uh, from, from both teams there. But yeah, Luke, as, as Kev said, you spoke to Zach Brown uh, you know, for the, for the, for the, uh, the main uh, interview behind this feature. How did that go? How did you find him as he's preparing for another, another season in charge of McLaren? Yeah, he was on excellent form. I mean, Zach is a great, he's a great storyteller. I mean, he's a marketer by trade and has obviously been very successful throughout his career. And um, he was, uh, we we initially planned the meeting for for one day and it got bumped out with about five minutes notice. And McLaren were very apologetic, but it was all okay. And then we actually rearranged it, I think it was about seven o'clock the next evening. And I said, are you sure? Like, does Zach work that late? And McLaren were like, he literally just doesn't stop working. He's going all the time. So by seven o'clock, most of his meetings were done. And um, yeah, we chatted for close to an hour in the end. And um, it was, yeah, really, really good. Like it was some fantastic insight in terms of the revival and we went right the way back to when he first walked into McLaren in the, towards the end of 2016 obviously there'd been a big um, boardroom struggle going on Ron Dennis had been ousted the car was pretty much blank there were no sponsors and it was a very very different team I guess really sort of in the in the, the worst and the, the bleakest part of that second Honda era and uh, just seeing how far they've come has been a, a remarkable story so it was really good to sort of trace over all of that with him uh, but also sort look at sort of the uh, as I'm sure we'll get onto the wider stuff that McLaren is doing as well obviously we had the announcement over the winter that they've got an option for an entry into Formula E um, they're back in IndyCar with their uh, partnership with the, what was Schmidt Peterson Motorsports they're looking at Le Mans we talked about IMSA and I mean I I personally I've always loved those stories about drivers teams doing lots of different formulas um, and I just think it's it's so cool now that we've got a brand and a team back doing that and a lot of that really is down to Zach He's a, he is a racer at heart and he loves doing all these different championships and I just think it's such a it really is quite a unique story that we've got in motorsport now I think and particularly in Formula One we don't see it very often so yeah it was a really great opportunity to talk to the man who's really I guess led this turnaround and has put the building blocks in place for McLaren to potentially be back fighting at the front for wins and championships once again in the near future. Indeed, I think we'll come to talk about the other projects that McLaren's involved in and is looking at in greater detail sort of further on into this podcast. But Kev, that what McLaren is doing at the moment, it's got a heritage for doing that. You know, I think of the, the Can-Am cars that are on the McLaren Boulevard. It's, it's a team that is not just synonymous with Formula One. Yeah, absolutely. They, um, they actually had success in, in Can-Am sports car racing before they, they won, a, won a Grand Prix um, when Bruce McLaren founded the company in the 1960s. Uh, they then had a lot of success in IndyCar in the 70s, uh, won the Indy 500. In fact, one hour, uh, all towards 70th greatest IndyCar debate was, a, was, a, was the McLaren M16. Um, and then uh, I think Ron Dennis probably actually didn't really like uh, McLaren to be anywhere else. He was kind of persuaded into even allowing the F1 GTR to go to Le Mans, but everyone loved it. People still talk about that car um, and the long tail that came after it. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think, uh, yeah, what Luke says is absolutely right. You know, Zach is an enthusiast. He's got his own collection of historic racing cars, and um, and yeah, you, know, you can see how enthusiastic he is. He's almost like a big bit of a fan sometimes in the in the in the pit lane, isn't he? But I think that t- to his credit, he's also identified putting the right people. It took him a little while, and it always does take a little while to get the right people in the right place. But I think Andreas Seidel was a very important signing. I think a lot of people at Porsche, even now, are quite 
disappointed that he'd gone and that's always a good sign of someone's ability that um you know that he's missed from where he's gone so and you can see the changes made and as much as I'm a huge fan of Fernando Alonso I think him leaving and allowing this kind of fresh Carlos Sainz Lando Norris dynamic that everyone yeah, it was great entertainment, it was light-hearted, and I think that's probably after all the years of the GP2 engine quotes and the you know Alonso wringing the car's neck and then saying it was his greatest driver every other weekend. Um, I think it probably gave everyone a bit of a refresh. So yeah, they've got got momentum now, um, and I guess the question is how far how far they can they can take it. And sort of staying with Zach Brown, Luke, you describe him in the piece as the architect of McLaren's recent revival. But, you know, his tenure in charge didn't start wonderfully, given he came on board just at the very start of what was a really horrible season in 2017, the last with the Honda engines. Of course, you know, that was that was baked in. That was that was, you know, a legacy of the the problems with the the Honda power unit and and, and the relationship at that point when, when Brown came in. But how exactly has he gone about changing things uh, sort of top down, really, at McLaren? That is the thing. It really has been sort of clean house in in pretty much every department. We've seen, uh, I think, firstly on the the engine front, I think that that decision in 2017 to end that partnership with Honda after only three years, I think at the time that was seen as being quite a big risk because Honda, not only did they give McLaren work status, which is something obviously they lost when Mercedes returned to the sport and they're making the switch then to Renault. It's kind of like, are you going to be a customer team again? Is that the right thing? And also the financial hit as well, because Honda were investing a lot of money into that project um, uh, on that front. Like it was quite a, it was a very bold decision, but Zach was confident it was the right thing to do and and stuck to it. And then we saw on the, um, on the management side as well, we saw figures such as uh, Eric Boulier leave um, the, um, the, some of the technical leads, um, Matt Morris, Tim Goss, they departed as well. And Zach said that for he just wanted to get the right people in place. And that did take time. I remember uh, through 2018, Zach and uh, Gilles de Farran, who joined a sporting director, and was primarily brought on board basically to look after what McLaren wanted to do on the IndyCar side. But they both found themselves like, dealing with us like after a bad qualifying we'd be like well what happened and really it was neither of their jobs to actually go over that that's down to the team principal and to the technical chiefs who at the time weren't really in place so it took time for as uh, as Kev said to bring Andreas Seidel in who has been a, a phenomenal signing I can only echo that he's been he's been brilliant and he just he's such a good operator of a racing team we saw what he did with Porsche overseeing its success with the with the 919 hybrid at Le Mans and uh, also James Key as well on the technical side has been an absolutely fantastic um, addition and Zach basically said that he wanted to get the right people in the right place and change the culture a bit and make it so that people weren't in the factory with their heads down that they were optimistic they were feeling good again and bit by bit that came I mean it came with he said things such as uh, changing the car colour back to orange because that's what the fans were excited about and getting sponsorship on board and I mean that car is littered with sponsors now and it's a world away from I think of sort of 2014-2015 when it was that sort of chrome and then black car and there were very few names on there at all um, and he's really come a long way and I think that has that has been a thing it's such a, a big change and I think finally, also on the driver front, that yeah, Fernando Alonso brought a lot of talent as a phenomenal driver, but there was so much baggage with him as well. And it kind of always felt that even after he stepped away from the race seat in 2019, um, when he was still there as like an ambassador and he tested the car, it was kind of like there was still just a bit of an air of him around. And I think one great thing that Andreas Seidel did come in and say he's not driving the car anymore. He's not a McLaren F1 driver anymore. And maybe maybe curb a little bit of the sort of that old sort of, oh yeah, get Fernando back, that'd be quite cool. And actually be quite realistic and say, no, it's about the future. It's about these young guys, Lando Norris, Carlos Sainz Jr. And then that delivered their two best seasons in recent history. And I think it's a huge achievement and they deserve a lot of credit for just the complete blank canvas they've turned into something really great. I think to pick up on the theme of the the change, the changing attitude, it actually goes back to something uh, Alex said at the start of the show, which was, um, yeah, was it right to go for the Honda engines in in 2015 when they had Mercedes? Now, now it look, you're looking back on it, you think, well, what a ridiculous decision. But actually, if you think about it, Ron Dennis had got a lot of success in the 80s by having a manufacturer engine deal rather than being a customer. Uh, in fact, during that turbo era, and even into the early nineties, after after they'd gone back to normally aspirated engines, you needed a manufacturer deal. Like you were not going to win with an off-the-shelf engine as a customer. So I could completely see the logic of him going for the Honda deal, and I want to be a manufacturer-associated team. But perhaps the 
process of the last few years has been a realization that they needed to get other things in place first um you know let's let's find out that next year they will know where that chassis is compared to the mercedes because they'll have the same engine you're reducing the variables and it's a very realistic where are we and what do we need to improve on can can a customer engine can a customer team win under the current rules i'm not convinced they can so i think ron dennis may have had a point that might change your course to 2022, which is what McLaren is looking towards anyway. Yeah, I think it was Eric Billier who throughout 2016 and even in 2017 was really saying how you had to be a works team if you wanted to be successful. You needed that and that support. And ultimately then they went and became a Renault customer a year later. So it seemed like quite an odd, an odd move. But I think that we saw last year that McLaren proved that actually it's not as important nowadays, that they were able to beat Renault in the Constructors' Championship by two places despite being a Renault customer. And that was, I think, really, really impressive. And I agree, Kev, I think this coming year is going to be the ultimate barometer for them with this Mercedes partnership. And I think that it's also important to highlight that they're not in the same way a partner as Aston Martin is. Obviously, we had, the, as you mentioned earlier, the pink Mercedes last season, uh, or that Williams is going down the similar route as as well in the future it seems where it's going to be a bit of a closer technical partnership it is really a straight up customer deal but the, the suggestions are that the way the F1 is moving that's all you need to be successful you don't need it to be a works team or you don't need it to be one of these sort of close technical alliances so I think McLaren they've really proven their sort of strength operationally over the past couple of years I think that's been very impressive and I think we saw last year particularly they learned from a lot of early season mistakes to sort of improve and bounce back and I think that it puts them in really good set for the future so yeah I think that maybe maybe at the time I think Ron was I think I agree I think he was totally correct in terms of going after that work still but i think as we move into the future particularly when we only have three manufacturers properly in the sport to be honest being a customer particularly when you've got a mercedes power unit that's no bad thing at all indeed and just before i ask my next question um, i just i want to echo what you said about you guys said about andreas seidel i think um porsche's still reeling a little bit from his decision uh, to, to, to leave and join mclaren i think uh, you know there's, there's rumors that there was a there was a bit of a bit of frustration before the Christmas party in whatever year it was uh, that he said he was going to leave Porsche and I think the, the, the Formula E team was all geared up that was going to be obviously the next project after the very successful LMP1 program so yeah I think um, what what was really interesting as I was the Formula E correspondent at the, at the time ahead of Porsche coming in was was listening to the drivers talk about Seidel and how you know how wonderful he was to work with and, and what he really brought to them and i i do wonder and i think i think that went in a, a piece i did for gp racing magazine last season which was that you know that it was that was probably a key point why daniel ricardo wanted to join the team because he will have heard all these things he will know Seidel's reputation he will have spoken to i'm sure you know the drivers that he's worked with and 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 understood that you know this this is a really a really key thing and good thing about joining mclaren I think that's a great signing as well, by the way, getting Ricardo in. I think that's like that's the basically the best driver they could have had available um, when when you know Carlos Sainz left, obviously go to Ferrari. Uh, he's a proven race winner. Uh, you could argue that he's the best driver on the grid that hasn't got a championship to his name. Okay, debatable point, but I think he's he's properly top notch. Um, there are several drivers, highly rated drivers, that have gone in against him as teammates, and he's kind of shown them the door. Uh, and you can look at the struggle Red Bull have had of replacing him, uh, you know, alongside Max Verstappen. No one has got so far. No one has got anywhere near as close to Verstappen as Ricardo was when he was there. And I think that also speaks to the McLaren project as well. That the moment that seat came up. Ricardo was straight in and signed and Zach Brown said that they did try and sign him a couple of years back when he left Red Bull and kind of when you heard about that at the time you thought that's ridiculous like why on earth would he have joined McLaren but the fact that this time around I think it was two days between Sainz being confirmed to be leaving and joining Ferrari and Ricardo being announced as his replacement and then Renault with their very sort of catty statement that didn't really thank him or anything and just said oh we, we've got different uh, views about long-term future or something like that um, but I think it was that was a big tell that basically McLaren mean business and what they're building is properly, properly good. That a driver of Daniel Ricciardo's caliber was like, that is where I want to be for the future, no doubts about it. Well, seeing as we're on the the subject of McLaren's new drive lineup for 2021, um, Kev, how do you think Lando Norris will get on alongside Ricciardo? We sort of we've we've talked about this before in that you know he's very very highly rated. Obviously, won uh, our award the what was then the McLaren Autosport BRDC Award. Of course, now it's the Aston Martin Autosport BRDC Award. Um, He's been very successful in his first two years in Formula One after his uh, incredible um, rise to the junior ranks. But he really has, as you say, almost the ultimate benchmark now in in, in, a, in a driver of Ricardo's calibre. He's a proven race winner. So 
how big a test now is this for Norris? I think it is a big test, but I think that he's got the right attitude that he should learn from it. He's very self-reflective, always questioning what he's doing, how can he improve... Um, and I think having a yeah he's already said hasn't he having having Daniel in the in the other car and in the team it's it's got to be good yeah he's worked with a, a team that's won championships not that long ago and won races that's a lot of experience yeah there's going to be a lot of things that he knows that Lando can learn from I think it is quite a tough gig in terms of comparing himself to Ricardo on track but um, yeah he's not un, he's not unbeatable and I think so, so long as Lando is. It's kind of trading blows him in the same sort of way as he did with science whilst learning from him. I think it's. I don't think anyone will, will uh, judge Lando too harshly against against Ricardo, unless of course he completely thumps him. But I don't. I don't think that happened. I think Lando's got enough about him that that, um, that it should be a, a win win for everyone. Well, um, Luke, going back to something that Zach Brown says uh, in in the in the feature, he says that McLaren became a bit Darth Vader in its declining years and needed to become uh, warmer as a Formula One organization. Now, I'm a, a massive Star Wars fan, so this this caught my attention immediately. Um, what exactly does he mean by that? It just became a bit, and I've seen on Twitter today because we, we ran a news piece with with those quotes, and a lot of people say, "Well, actually, no, because Darth Vader was Luke's father, and blah blah blah." And I mean, I've got it, it doesn't w- it doesn't work on many levels, but okay. we'll, we can get okay. into that. But we'll get to that. What, what did he, what did that around <laughs> mean? But I think it's just the idea of it becoming sort of quite a quite a cold, um, not very not very warm, and not very sort of outward looking organization. I think that is that's a fair way to do it. And I think that I mean, Zach in the interview and in in the piece, he makes admiration for Ron Dennis very very clear. And Ron, what he built at McLaren was incredible. But towards the end, it did become a bit like it just it just became. I don't know, like even I found in my dealings with him, I remember the uh, press conference after Fernando Alonso's mysterious testing accident in Barcelona in 2015, I think it was. And Ron was so adamant, he's not concussed, he didn't have concussion, he didn't have concussion. And then about two weeks later, they put out a statement going, oh yeah, he did actually have concussion. It was just this, this weird mixed messaging. And I think that it kind of permeated to, to every level, that the sponsors were leaving the team and not really being replaced. Ron was saying, well, the era of the title sponsor's dead, so we don't need one and we'll be fine. And just this sort of self-assurance that you need to a certain level, you need to be confident. But if you go down the wrong path, then you can really be left in trouble. And I think that's what McLaren did. And we, we saw that towards the end of Ron's reign at the team. And I think it was it was wonderful how Zach Brown came in and changes were immediate. I mean, as soon as we saw um, the papaya livery come out in 2017, I think that was a big sort of a big shift by McLaren to say, look, we are going to rebrand. We're going to be a, a different team moving forward. Uh, Zach Brown, he's always placed a big focus on what the fans want. I think we've seen that through a lot of like McLaren's digital offerings and things like that. There was a great video they put out today showing um, Daniel Ricciardo's first seat fit and how he's interacting with the team and everything. And I had messages from friends who work at other teams going, I wish we could do that. Like that level of access McLaren give is so cool. And it is, it's that kind of thing that I think it's that warmth that maybe is quite the sort of the Luke Skywalker level that he wanted to get to where everything is quite positive and the, the, the force is in balance. And I don't know if these Star Wars references are working uh, perfectly, Alex, but I'm sure you can correct. It, 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 it's just not, it doesn't, it just doesn't fit with anything to do with Formula <laughs> One. I mean, you, you, you would say that at the moment Mercedes is the empire because it's completely dominant, but there's issues with that in terms of it's not it's not coming from a fundamentally evil position <laughs> and also it's 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 one of the it's one of the sort of it's, it's genuinely a, a, a good atmosphere team if you see what I mean they are sort of they are still the goodies in terms of what they're doing with like you know promoting social justice and things like that so Star Wars metaphors are fraught with peril from my point of view but yeah Kev my question next to, was actually next to you anyway was um do you agree with what Brown says about McLaren becoming a bit Darth Vader? And what are your thoughts on that Star Wars? Well, imagine? I mean, clearly it's... Um, I think maybe he shouldn't have picked Star Wars because so many people are so into it <laughs> that it's going to become fraught and problematic. I mean, I'm probably somewhere between the two of you that I like it, but I'm I'm not going to be tweeting people that actually it's not quite right because X, Y... No, no come on. I well, think I wouldn't be they, doing that anyway because that's ridiculous and people should never do that. But, well, exactly. Oh, yeah. But I think the point is, is that, I mean, I heard stories during the sort of the dark, the you know, the dark era, <laughs> the Darth Vader <laughs> era of, of people being worried about, uh, a little bit like that when Ferrari had its worst, people being worried to make a mistake or to admit that something was wrong or could be improved or they had to go 
you know, through very rigid structures to be able to get feedback or ideas. And what you want is a much more flexible, agile, positive kind of environment. And that's what Mercedes has. You might call them the empire, but they are that. They're all positive. They all know whether they're putting in the same direction. They know what the strategy is. They're all involved. Everyone's made to feel like they're valued. And I think that the Darth Vader reference is that McLaren had got to that point where it didn't feel like that anymore. And I think you know Zach and the, and the new approach has hopefully brought that brought that back a bit. I think that that's probably what he was getting at in in in, in Luke's piece. I don't think he was inviting lots of comparisons in there. You know. A-level grade essays on why Zach Brown is wrong about his Star Wars reference in F1. Yeah, I hate to think what the fan fiction or anything would be surrounding all of that. But um, <laughs> anyway, but um, no, and it's, it's true. And Zach said in the piece that sort of the culture is that you can make a mistake, fine. Just don't make the same mistake twice. I think that's a very good way to go about their business. And Mercedes, I mean, they've made famous their no-blame culture that you look at you don't look don't think about blame think about the problem and how do you fix the problem and it's so important and um towards the end of last year zach told a really good story about carlos Sainz's first qualifying um former clown when he was he was held up i think i've told this story on one of the podcast before but he was held up by a uh, slow going robert kibitzer and got knocked out in q1 on debut for mclaren which wasn't a great look but the zach went straight to him after qualifying and said hey look we know what happened there don't worry about it we know you're brilliant it's okay you'll get him next time and Science turned around and said, I've never had that before. Like, no one's come and given me that sort of reassurance and that backing after a qualifying session. And it's kind of a, a world away from, I guess, what you would have had, particularly at, at Toro Rosso and within the Red Bull environment of the, if you have one bad race, that could be your last. So, yeah, that company culture changing that. And I think particularly so far away from the Ron era where, wasn't it, Adrian Newey got in serious trouble for changing the colour of his wall it was painted a certain colour of blue that Ron didn't like something like that it's uh, it's a big change that I think had to happen to really bring McLaren into the modern era just in case anyone was wondering which I'm sure they're not um, the best Star Wars film bit controversial this because it's one of the newer ones although not the uh, the, pre- the, uh, the sequel trilogy is Rogue One brilliant film absolutely oh, incredible oh that's fantastic even works like, as a standalone movie it's excellent just mainly because yeah. of the decisions that are taken towards the end so anyway slight tangent final five minutes is yeah, oh, yeah. superb superb um, anyway getting back to uh, to Motorsport Swiftly I can see Kev losing the will to live uh, Kev has also interrupted his holiday to record this podcast so we should uh, we should thank him for that I mean I know it's a it's a lockdown holiday as it was but uh, thank you very much Kev for giving up it's a time. homeschooling holiday Indeed. so this is this is probably the highlight of my week to be honest <laughs> I, I do well we wish you were the best fortunately it's nearly the weekend as we're recording this but um, yeah Kev I mean one of the questions I wanted to ask was that McLaren, we've we've talked about them already. They've had some pretty famous and pretty legendary, really, in the history of Formula One uh, team bosses and, you know, uh, uh, main figures over the years. So where do we think, it's quite early, I appreciate this, but where might we consider Zach Brown to be in comparison with the others? I don't, I'm not, I'm not asking you to rank them, but sort of how, how, how does he compare compared to what came before? Oh, I think you 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 can only make that judgment when it's, when his, you know, time is, you know, we've seen what he can deliver. Um, you know, remember Formula One is a different, uh, you know, different ball game to to what Bruce McLaren would have faced and what Ron Dennis faced. Um, so, I mean, I think he's made a positive start. If you can come in and you can improve where the team was, let's not forget the absolute dire situation that McLaren were in when Ron Dennis arrived with Project Four Racing. They were absolutely appalling. Like we we're talking, sort of, you know, Williams Williams style. Um, a, a couple of years ago but for longer probably uh, and he turned them around very quickly and then they won multiple championships so the fact that his his time ended with the team is, is yeah, badly is a little bit sad I think um, and yeah Zach at the moment you'd say he's he's shown an improvement so that's that's got to be a that's got to be a good thing can he go on and win multiple championships I think that, that won't just be down to him that's going to be down to the way that the F1 goes and you know Ron Dennis never had to face Mercedes you know Mercedes were out of Grand Prix racing for a long time uh, I've been doing a bit of work on, on on Mercedes Grand Prix cars recently and they have a pretty good habit of coming in and steamrolling everyone whichever era you pick they do it so they are phenomenal um, so to, to, to knock them off that, that perch I think is um, yeah I, I wouldn't judge him if he failed on that but if he if, if McLaren's in a better place when he leaves than when he arrived then it's a success isn't it definitely is also it's going to get harder to continue that 
upward trend just because you know it's the, it's the law of diminishing returns and and the fact that you're going up against bigger and better teams uh, at the front of the grid in terms of his day Mercedes Red Bull Ferrari okay yeah had the terrible year last year but it's still one of the one of the big three in terms of in terms of size and that that also that also brings us nicely on to the sort of the next bit of the podcast which which does look at sort of more to do with the the future of Formula One we've talked about 2022 and, and you know that is that is the big target that lots of the the midfield group that McLaren finds itself in a target targeting uh, you know as their big chance to leap back up the order or, or indeed just leap up the order um but right now a, a key thing has already come in for 2021 that zach brown in particular and mclaren were very vocal about and that is the the cost cap you know the new the brand new financial regulations um and you know how that worked i mean luke what impact do you expect that to have at mclaren but it's already like considering you know during the early stages of the pandemic it was in some quite considerable financial trouble and you you cover that in your feature so what is the latest on mclaren's finances and yeah where does it sit with the new cost cap rules well yeah financially it's a world away from where they were as you said in the the early part of the pandemic they took out a 150 million pound loan from the national bank of bahrain uh, they were on about selling the and they still are looking at selling the the mtc factory and then leasing it back just to free up a bit more capital as well and uh, they also announced across the mclaren group so that also includes the automotive site uh, there would be uh, 1200 redundancies so it was quite a bleak financial picture but that a lot of that has changed i mean the, the budget cap is such a huge game changer for f1 as a whole but for McLaren in particular I mean they're no longer basically punching I, I think I in the feature I said they're no longer taking a, a knife to a gunfight they're no longer going up against these teams that are funded with sort of triple the amount of money that they are and who can just go to their turn to the manufacturer and say look we need a bit more cash and, and get it pulled in that they are they they've now got the ability to fight on a more level playing field and I, I think sort of show the operational strength that we've seen uh, in the last couple of years but on, on a bigger level and um, the, I think the big thing for McLaren's financial picture was the announcement um, on the Sunday of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix that MSP Sports Capital, who are an American investment fund, would be investing 185 million in the team and taking a shareholding. And uh, that is a big, that's big for McLaren. I mean, not only is it the financial impact as well, but it's the sporting knowledge and know-how. I mean, they've got experience from uh, NBA, MLB, uh, there's ESPN executives there as well. So it's a lot of good sporting knowledge and uh, it's this sort of franchise value that Liberty wanted to build within F1 teams and all Already, we're starting to see that with McLaren. So that's a really good step. So, yeah, Zach Brown, he said that the financial issues, they're, they're all gone overnight. That's why they've now got a business plan moving forward that they can sort of think about other sort of avenues of motorsport and other things they want to do. But at the heart of all of that is Formula One. And therefore, the budget cap is so, so important to what they want to do. And it will mean that they don't have to, they're only going to have to come down a little bit from what they're currently spending to meet the budget cap but they can look at these other projects uh, their capex projects such as building a new wind tunnel and upgrading other facilities that um, will help move the team forward so it allows McLaren to be a big team in Formula 1 once again because frankly for the past sort of six seven years I mean you could even argue ever since Mercedes returned with its own works operation and that became its focus McLaren simply hasn't been a big team in F1 it hasn't had that level of funding or the chance to compete with the big runners in the same kind of way it used to yeah, that, that brings me on nicely to next question I was going to direct to Kev in terms of what Brown says about how the cost cap could really level things. He says, you know, he sees it as potentially there'll be seven squads on equal footing because the big teams have got to come down to the cost cap. Those at McLaren's level sort of, you know, the, the likes of Renault, etc., are having to make a little adjustment to get under the cost cap. Aston Martin with Stroll's uh, money will go up much up towards it. Williams has already said, well, we're well under it. We won't necessarily immediately go up to the level, but we will build up that way. Um, you know, do you think he's right that you could end up with that many teams having the same amount of resources, the same amount of potential? Because it's, it, it, you could argue that's an oversimplification because the likes of Mercedes with all its resources and what it's done with some similar thing that Red Bull's got is it's got an applied science division now now McLaren already has that in terms of McLaren applied technologies but that you know that's that's really famous for doing things other than Formula One and motorsport and things like that although it does do a lot of really good work in that area as well so yeah what what, what did you think about those comments from Brown and, and, and the potential that it has to place McLaren back amongst uh, all the other teams at the front of the grid I think it's hard to believe that a, a big uh, championship winning squad like Mercedes won't still find ways of using what it has. Um, I mean, what it's got is intellectual resource for a start. Yeah, you know, it's, it's brain power. 
um, that's what it's been able to have by being so big and having so much money. So some of that will, yeah, they'll they'll have to find a way of, of coming down to the cap, but they're not just going to suddenly lose everything they know and all the all the clever people that they've got. So it will be, I wouldn't call it a level playing field, but it's got to be getting something back to being, uh, giving them a chance at least to be within, you know, within a, a certain amount of it. I think the order will probably not change that much. But at the moment, the order is, you know, you know that Mercedes is going to win the race unless Max Verstappen can pull something out for Red Bull. Whereas it might be that the gaps are smaller. So if Mercedes make you know, a blunder in the pit stops or in strategy, which they which they do do, to be fair, it might be that it's not just Max that can benefit. It might be it might be you know one of the McLarens or or an Aston Martin or Renault or Alpine as it will be. You know, it, it might mean that we get, a f- you know, I think the champions will still probably be from the big teams, but we might get more individual race winners which i think is more like what we would have had in the in the golden era whenever that was that people always refer back to it's 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 people want to see that there's the possibility that the midfield teams can get the odd win or podium um, and hopefully that's what it will bring and that's something that Zach Brown really touched on. He said he wanted F1 to become more sort of IndyCar style, where you have the, the big teams, the, the Penske's, the Andretti's, the Ganassi's, they do win the championships, they do tend to be fighting at the front, but you see quite an even spread of race winners that you can have sort of five, six, seven teams winning races across the season. And that he, he said it'd be nice if you got back to a position where it took three or four wins to win a championship. And I, I can't remember the last time that even in the Drivers' Championship, that was enough to win a title. We probably, I don't know, probably... Lewis 2008 maybe because that was quite an open season but it's been it's been a while um whereas nowadays yeah Mercedes will win sort of 17 18 races and leave the, the scraps to the rest of the team so it's quite dominant but I think that is sort of the vision moving forward to make F1 the best team still win but everyone's got a chance more so than now indeed I think that's quite a key point that you you guys you guys have made there because this sort of this this will throw forward quite nicely to to the next week's Autosport magazine cover which looks at Mercedes and and potential issues that it itself has highlighted that could catch out a little bit in 2021 and as part of I've been putting that together over the course of this week and as part of that I was I was looking at some comments Toto Wolf made last summer about you know the cost cap and how it's going to adjust and basically it's 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 altered its operation to make sure it doesn't lose its staff and that's a key thing that you know that, that that whole culture that Mercedes has done so well to create and done so wonderfully and and, and leans on so successfully is really key. They don't want people to disappear because they know, as you say, Kev, they're very very clever, they're very very loyal, and they do very very good job. So that's not going to disappear. So it, it comes with sort of it's sort of like a yeah, it's, it's it's a really good thing for Formula One all this stuff, but there are still there are still these warning signs that we've got to and a warning sign is possibly the sort of maybe it's a bit over you know a sort of a a grandiose term but it it is still there that it might not totally revolutionize everything as much as might be hoped for i think you also have to remember and this this sounds a bit harsh but i only mean it in the context of where we've got to in the in the past you had big fluctuations from one season to another often because teams did a bad job they'd make a mistake they'd go down the wrong path ferrari being a classic example in terms of it's always had great well not always but often had great resources and its own test track yeah other teams yeah other drivers would go there and go i can't believe Ferrari doesn't win every race um, and for a long time they didn't do that um, because a lot of teams weren't getting the best out of what they had i think all the teams now even the ones at the back are really good racing teams so you you don't get these these i mean i was speaking to a, a, an ex-designer um last year he said you know when there was one person designing the car if they had an idea in their head that you know i'm gonna stick you know the rear wheels in the air they go yeah we'll try it and so you had all these eclectic mix of cars that looked brilliantly different and people loved it but a lot of them were terrible whereas now we all know where the engine should be and what a car what an f1 car should look like even if you threw away the rule book you you know certain things about it because we we've learned that over a hundred years of of motorsport. So I think everyone's very good, and that means that you get these very long uh, sequences where if you've got that small advantage, you keep it and you and, and and you make the most of it in a way that probably previous eras didn't. Um, so I think that will remain. But I think as as Luke said, you just want the possibility of 
of somebody being able to nick a win here or there or maybe if one of the big teams actually does make a mistake one day someone can you know steal in and, and punish them for it indeed well just before we um, we come on to talk about the kev your latest top 10 list which i know you love putting together um just just want to discuss uh, mclaren's sort of wider portfolio that it has these days we've got additional features in the magazine this week and they'll be available i'm sure on autosport.com plus with uh, matt q talking about the potential for um uh, mclaren to you know race in formula e in the future and david Marshall lopez examining um the indycar entry that it has with schmidt peterson motorsport um obviously with formula e it already has skin in the game as it were as it currently supplies the batteries for the gen 2 car although it doesn't have the battery tender for gen 3 which is why it is potentially going to be coming in as a team but luke what is what is this wider expanse i mean we talked about it a little bit at the beginning what, what but what does it say about mclaren and its future health that it is already invested in one other championship and maybe looking at another one in the coming years I think it just really shows the mentality of the team there and the fact that they've put together this sort of expansion. It's all part of the business plan and they haven't sort of said, okay, we've got the budget for F1. Right, now we need to find a little bit more more money to do IndyCar Formula E. But they've actually seen it as being part of sort of their wider portfolio and they all have a different box that they really tick. And on the, on the Formula E side, I mean, most of the manufacturers that have gone into that, they've done it because they've got an electric sort of car side and they wanted to sort of use it to further technology and promote that side of it and, and for mclaren that's not the case they don't have any evs on mclaren automotive it's about sustainability and Zach brown said it'd be a great sort of credential for mclaren to say look we have a team racing in formula e that's that sort of proves our environmental credentials um on the indycar side he said for north american exposure he said that's absolutely huge and that it means they can get sponsors who maybe want to work on the f1 side and say hey look we've got an indycar team as well if you want some more exposure in the u.s we, we can sort that out for you so everything kind of fits a purpose and i think that's the thing mclaren aren't they aren't doing these other projects for the sake of it and it's never ever a distraction and zap brown sort of talks about the the mclaren solar system and how you've got f1 for mclaren at the very center and then everything else revolves around it and everything else has to sort of feed back to the f1 program and in some way benefit it and i think that's that's really interesting that there's always uh everything is really well thought out and i think it's the same with the formula e entry they've got the option um for a season nine entry which would, would be really exciting but they won't do that unless they're absolutely sold on it and say look this is something that we need to do and make sense and um i asked him about because i mean i kev you talked about the, the f1 gtr and le mans i mean i I love that story and I would love to see a McLaren back at Le Mans. But Zach said that ultimately that is more of an automotive thing and ultimately it would be more costly if they were going to do a, a Le Mans hypercar or something like that. So he said that would probably be a little bit more to consider. But it's still it's still sort of the thinking is there and there's none of this sort of knee-jerk decision-making and saying, okay, we want to win everything, let's go and do it. It is always well thought out and with an actual purpose. And I think that's really, really important. So yeah, I think it's it's a it's such a cool story. I love sort of the multidiscipline side of it, but it's also the fact that everything is very very purposeful and i think that's something that mclaren do deserve a lot of credit for in their planning indeed well let's move on to the second main chunk of the podcast and this is also in the magazine as well although uh, in the magazine it's only the top five best mclarens per kev's ranking uh, we've got 10 of them for uh, autosport.com plus and the podcast so kev gonna pin you down on why these 10 mclarens are in this particular order and then we'll see uh, what, uh, what alterations luke might have made to the order and um, in 10th place we've got the mclaren mercedes mp420 from 2005 took 10 wins it's a very high number arguably should have won that year's title with Kimi raikkonen but he lost out to fernando alonso due to that awful reliability it had why is that number 10 it was that or the 2012 mp427 uh both flawed cars so um both both uh on raw pace arguably the fastest cars of the their seasons um but lost out on championships due to uh, reliability concerns i was in the end uh, i went for the mp420 partly because it got closer to winning the championship than the than the 27 partly because i think it looks cooler and partly because it didn't cause lewis hamilton to leave the team join another team and then for the next decade thrash you and win championship after championship uh which you know the famously the the failures at the end of the season uh just at the time when Nicky Lauda was wooing Lewis Hamilton were enough to, I think, push Lewis into signing for Mercedes, which I suspect is a decision that he, he doesn't lose any night's sleep over. Um, but yeah, so the MP420, got a lot of people love that car. A lot of people 
because it's intertwined with Kimi Raikkonen and he should have won the championship. You're wrong. Fernando Alonso was the correct champion that year, but that's a different podcast. But yeah, it's a, it is a pretty cool car. Just very quickly, very anecdotally about um, Lewis Hamilton and the, the, the 2012 McLaren and how badly that went wrong. He's he's thrown a few hand grenades into the sort of folklore about Nicky Lauda, you know, really was the one that convinced him to go to Mercedes. So I'm absolutely fascinated because Hamilton every now and then teases the fact that he's going to release a book when he's when he's done with his career about everything that went down. So I'm absolutely fascinated to read that. I think that would be, uh, be really interesting to see. But anyway, that's that's, as, that's another different podcast that we can get into, I'm sure. So let's move on to your pick for number nine, which is the McLaren Honda MP4-6. Now, this was the car used in 1991, took eight wins and obviously Ayrton Senna's third world title. And we recently said on the Autosport podcast and in the magazine that we consider that to be... Uh, Senna's best season in Formula One uh, but it was also the year where Williams really rose up to depose or towards deposing McLaren as F1's preeminent team so why is that 1991 car in ninth place well it was a championship winner but it's one of the weaker championship winners if that if, if such a thing exists so yeah you're right Williams was probably the faster car over the 10 of the 16 races we talked about this in our 1991 special I think that that McLaren it wasn't it wasn't a bad car but Gerhard Berger and Edson, neither of them were huge fans of the, the switch to the V12 engine it's the only V12 engine to have won the world championship so whether that's a plus or a minus I guess depends on your on your point of view so McLaren had to and Honda and Shell had to put a lot of effort into getting that car to win the championship and it still required I think one of the great campaigns from Senna to, to get it over the line um, so that's why it's ninth rather than higher up but it, it you know it did still you know it was the car that uh, clinched their fourth consecutive title double so um, yeah, yeah it did get the job done in eighth place, we've got the McLaren Mercedes MP420. Oh, why blanked that? <clears throat> MP422 from 2007 took eight victories, no titles. Because of course, while well, this is the car where Hamilton made his Formula One debut that year, won his first race in it, it let him down pretty badly in the Interlagos finale with the, uh, the sort of the issues that that struck suddenly there. And also, it has the shadow of the Spygate. Ferrari going on in the background around it um, but nevertheless still very famous McLaren but why is it in 8th place Kev? It's the, it's probably it's got to be one of the great Grand Prix cars that didn't win a championship uh, it was the fastest car of the season it scored more points than any other car um, and the only reason it didn't win a title was obviously they, the whole Spygate thing meant that they lost the Constructors Championship but they did score more points than Ferrari and the only way in which Fernando Alonso Lewis Hamilton could lose that championship with the total points that McLaren scored was to divide it exactly in two which is what they managed to do uh, and let Kimi Raikkonen through and steal Ferrari which I think given how political the season had gone having the least political driver win the championship was actually quite nice um, but that car definitely deserved uh, a title and was I think a better car than the year that than the car that followed that Lewis did manage to win the championship in um, and I think also as much as yeah, Hamilton's 2007 season is it's got to be the greatest rookie season in F1 history you've got to have a decent car to be able to do that and uh, you yeah, know I think it was it's pretty obvious that, that was uh, yeah, a very good car Again, it, uh, just 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 to throw a random uh, something into this uh, podcast, as I was doing uh, on on the on the one that will be on the previous Autosport feed, as Luke would know that we recorded with Jonathan Noble earlier today. Um, just just in my first year in Formula One, it's been really lovely to hear lots of anecdotes and stories that that, that other journalists that I've been you know getting to know have got in terms of Formula One, and, and one of them you know really concerns the 2007 season and the mind games that both obviously we know Alonso was doing it because he's famous for it but Hamilton as well there were you know there, there's some really there were some really really interesting things that they were they were doing when it all uh, when it all came apart so again another reason why I really want to read that book whenever it's going to come out Lewis no pressure but you know it's lockdown people are bored we'd love to read it um Let's go on to the seventh place car, uh, McLaren Mercedes MP414, which is from 1999, seven wins, and of course, uh, Mika Hakkinen's second world title. So, Kev, why number seven for the MP414? It's a difficult one because, first of all, I think it, looked, it was a mega looking car for that era. Uh, I, I have mentioned before how I'm not a fan of the groove tyre narrow cars, but, but the McLarens during that era do look good. I think they look pretty mega. It was the fast car of the season. Mika Hakkinen did win the world championship in it. But it was difficult to factor in how much heavy weather McLaren made of winning that title because they had such a car advantage. And no disrespect to Eddie Irvine, Marcus Schumacher missed half a dozen races because he had a broken leg and they still managed to lose the Constructors' Championship to Ferrari. How did McLaren manage it? Well, they managed it because of various things. Some of them were driver errors. Some of them were wheels falling off after pit stops. Some of them was unreliability. 
I, I struggled to know how much of that was the car's fault, how much of it was driver, how much of it was team. So I thought seventh was fair in terms of it did win a championship, but it should have won more races in a constructors championship as well. Well, next up at number six is a very famous uh, car overall in F1 history because uh, famously it's the first fully carbon fibre monocoque car. That's the McLaren Ford MP41. Of course, uh, as you as you mentioned earlier, Kev, you know it's the first uh, it, it's the first car produced after McLaren merged with Ron Dennis's Project Four Racing team, after which that MP4 demarcation arrives until I think it is the 2017 car after Zach Brown comes on board, where they go to the MCL uh, demarcation that they've used ever since. So, why is that car at number six? It was used in three season took six wins scored no titles yeah so um, i'm going to cover off the fifth place car as well if i may at this point because right the last minute i had the mp41 in fifth um but it didn't win it it didn't it's very significant for two reasons one it does as you say resurrect mclaren pretty much immediately john barnard's first mclaren bang straight in competitive car um, and carbon fiber monocoque, so it's ticks on the innovation front. Probably got close to the 82 title than it should have done because that was a crazy season that deserved its own podcast. We should do that. Note that down, Alex. Um, and uh, so it's very significant, but the MP45 that I actually gave to fifth did win two title doubles, 89-90. I did do, try and do a little bit of research to see how much the 45B of 90 was similar to the 45 because sometimes you separate them sometimes you lump them together and I decided it was close enough although they do look quite different actually if you look at the photos because of the way they change the side pods and radiators um, they they were similar enough to warrant being lumped together and if you lump them together then yeah they won half the races that they entered um, and both championships both seasons so for me that that just popped it ahead of the MP4 one Um, but that is obviously a very significant car in, in both McLaren and F1 history it certainly is with those uh, those famous titles for Alan Prost in 1989 and Senna in 1990. Uh, but let's go on to your number four selection, which is the McLaren Mercedes MP4 13 from 1998. Took nine wins, obviously Hakkinen's first uh, driver's title and the constructor's title as well. And of course, he's famous for being the first car fully designed by Adrian Newey. Uh, so why is that number four, Kev? Well, very significant. So it ends a period of you know a barren spell. Okay, the the MP4 12 the year before did win uh, did win races and, and and probably should have won more actually. Um, but it's you know it's the first McLaren title winner for seven years. Uh, if you remember at the first round the in, in Melbourne, controversial because David Coulthard gave the win back to Mika Hakkinen after Mika's phantom pit stop, but they lapped the field. That's how far ahead they were. Um, they had their the special uh, braking system that braked one one side and was banned uh, fairly early on in the season. But they maintained their their advantage. Fry did erode it, uh, and some Mark Schumacher sort of super performances kind of made more of a championship fight than perhaps there should have been. Um, but ultimately, it it did win both championships. It was the best car of the season, uh, and it was important because it started the next era, the sort of Adrian Newey, McLaren, Mercedes era of, of championship contenders. But let's move on to the big contentious issue in this list. Uh, and I understand, Kev, you have actually taken some time to prepare your defence for the car that's in number, or for the decision to put this next car in number three. And it is uh, from 1998, the McLaren Honda MP44, which you describe in your in the article as a, a fan favourite and possibly the most famous of all McLarens. And it is consistently voted as the greatest car in Formula One history. So why have you decided to ride completely over that, completely over the democracy that we know is F1 Twitter and, and, and everybody's uh, beliefs in various other places? Why, why, why have you put it third, Kev? Why have you done that to, 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 the, to, the, to this particularly legendary car? Well, I think the events of 2016 showed that any public vote is massively overrated anyway. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, MP44. So, yeah, obviously, the, the, any one of the top three cars could have taken number one. The reason the MP44 doesn't is partly because it's not particularly innovative. Yeah, we'd already seen the low-line chassis from Gordon Murray and Bra- Brabham. Um, the MP43 actually was heading that direction as well. Yeah, it was a, it was a you know the Honda lineage of engines as they came down with the the, the bar was you know the the boost pressure yeah that was the benchmark engine. Um, it didn't really move the game on at, at all. And in fact, we talked I think before about the, the if you're going to pick a most significant car out of the season, you probably pick the March because that was an Adrian Newey. Oh, this is where aerodynamics and cockpits are going to go. 
I think you see more hints of that in subsequent cars than you will from the McLaren. So it's a bit of a dead end. Um, I'd say also, we talked about this before, Alex, and in terms of other cars, I think the opposition was weak. You know, Williams was completely stuffed by its move to Judd, Judd engines, because it lost the Honda deal. Um, so they were completely t- taken out of the equation. Lotus had already started their decline. The chassis was nowhere near as good. And Ferrari really in that, still in that kind of recovery process. And finally, and people might say this is a bit harsh, but I would suggest that if you've got a driver lineup of Alain Prost, Annette and Senna, you could probably have produced a pretty mediocre car and won every race that season because the only guy, I think, by 1988 who would have been on the le- anywhere near their level would have been Mansell. Pico's past his best. Schumacher hadn't arrived yet. And Mansell couldn't finish a race hardly because the Williams wasn't reliable enough. I think he finished a, had a couple of second places. Um, so they pretty much had it all their own way. So, yes... Obviously, it's a great car. Anything that wins 15 out of its 16 races is phenomenal. Um, but I think it's, yeah, I think it's one of those ones where the rose-tinted spectacles come out a little bit too often. I'm going to reveal the the, the order of uh, two and one just so you can justify why you've got the two cars in the positions that you do. And at number two, it's the McLaren Ford M23, which is the first McLaren to win an F1 crown. Had a long career of five seasons between 1973 and 77. 16 wins and two drivers' titles for Emerson Fittipaldi in 1974, James Hunt in 1976. But at number one, it's the McLaren Tag MP42. Again, this is a car used over multiple seasons uh, between 1984 and 86. Won 22 races, three drivers' titles, uh, one for Nicky Lauda and two for Alain Prost. So, why are the top two McLarens in your list in that particular order? Yeah, it's a tricky one because they're they're both significant. So you say the M23 is the first McLaren to win championship. The MP42 sets the ball rolling really for the 80s domination. It builds on the MP41 um, with the carbon composite chassis, but then adds in what I would argue is probably the first genuinely efficient, good turbocharged F1 engine. Um, you know, Renault, Ferrari and BMW had been sort of at it for a few years, Renault for longer than the others, of course, um, and had, had been powerful or reliable, but it, they hadn't really got it nailed. You know, 80, 1983 was the first season where uh, Turbos won both championships, constructors and drivers. And even then it wasn't you know, hugely convincing. Renault started started the season strongly, faded Nelson Piquet nicked in with Brabham and Ferrari won the constructors. So no one had really nailed the Turbo era yet. And then along comes you know, Ron Dennis, and he brings everything together. A proper chassis by and, and aerodynamics by John Barnard. The Coke bottle, so it's quite innovative as well, and trend setting. A brilliant engine from Porsche. You've always got experience already with fuel-limited turbocharging from Group C in sports car racing. Uh, and throwing Nicky Lauda and Alain Prost, and, and you've got a pretty good combination. Wins 12 out of 16 races in its first season. Um and it again carries on. So the M23 and the MP42 both do carry on for multiple seasons, but I think the MP42 is more convincing. Um, you know, it wins five championships. And even if you say, well, the 86 drivers title was more down to Alain Prost's genius and Williams' intra-team battle, that's that's still more than the M23 manages. Um, and the M23 wouldn't have won the 1976 Drivers' Championship had not been for Nicky Lauda's accident at the Nürburgring. That's no disrespect to James Hunt, who I think did a fantastic job and is probably actually a bit underrated um, as a driver. But yeah, the MP42's weight of success during a really competitive, you know, lots of manufacturers throwing turbo engines in, um, I think is is what gets it over the line for me. Um, although I'm not sure which one's cooler. I might be tempted to suggest the M23 is a little bit cooler. Um, but yeah, it ju- just edged it. But I'm interested. Luke's been very quiet. I'm interested to know which which of these he would move, or disagree with, agree with, etc. Oh well, I think I'm going to start. I'm going to start at the beginning, as is all the, the best way to do things <laughs> in a um, galaxy far, far away. Yeah, no, we've done that oh, bit. We've done, we've done that. Yeah. Um, no, I, I was really pleased actually to see the um, the MP420 from 2005 on this list because that that for me that was my first experience of F1 watching that 2005 season and the combination of Kimi and that car together was so so cool. And yeah, I think it's one of those years you look back and you're like, how on earth didn't that win a title? Like, arguably, that was that was probably the best Kimi Raikkonen we ever saw. And I think that package was just so, so fantastic. So yeah, I was very, very pleased to see that on the list. And honestly, there's not really a lot I would move around. I think, um, yeah, I agreed fully on the 2007 McLaren. I think that was a, a very, very strong car that 
would have should have won a title and i think that it is it's probably a bit underrated just because of all of the the sort of mist around that season everything that did go down and uh yeah i think it's really only on the top three that it's just as you say there's such a fine line between all of them and i think that it is as you say that it's the combination of not just competition but longevity and being able to make those cars work over multiple seasons and i think that when we uh when we did the autosport 70 podcast last year talking about the greatest grand prix cars of all time and it, i kind of went into it and i was thinking well no it's got to be should the st2004 or the mp44 like that that's it they were the most dominant but the more i thought about it, it was actually and the more arguments i think that you in particular make Kev, it was that these cars went on for such a long time and they were able to not only be sort of a one-hit wonder but they sustained that success right the way through and i think that yeah i think for that reason i think i think i'm inclined to agree actually with how you've ranked those top three i think that it's there's so little between them but it is just the fact that, that the MP42 did go on for so, so long. I think Nicky Lauda, it was it gave him a really cool sort of final title as well. I think they really brought out sort of the, the best of him in the, the sort of latter stages of his career. And uh, yeah, really set Alan Prost off, I think, in, in, in his sort of uh, championship winning success. So I'm uh, I'm going to be very diplomatic. As, uh, as I think is maybe not the best approach for a podcast, but still. And uh, yeah, I think actually, Kev, you've hit the nail on the head with that top three. Blimey. Thank you very much. I could argue against myself and be controversial and say <laughs> that if Jackie Stewart had been in a McLaren M23 in 1973, I think it all walks to the championship. Uh, I think Peter Revson and Denny Holm were not, not of uh, the top rank at that point. And I think it tells you everything that Denny Holm scored his one and only world championship pole position on the debut of the M23. Um, so yeah, that, that, but and really the only thing that worked against that is that although it was innovative in terms of the wedge shaped side pods approach, Colin Chapman had already got there first with a low to seventy two. So it uh, yeah, it, it lost a lost a little bit of a mark there. But uh, yeah, on sheer on sheer numbers, I thought the MP four two got it as well. Well, guys, I'm going to use my privileged position as podcast host just to point out that I was very pleased to see the MP four thirteen on this list because that. That just looking back from my childhood, I just think it's a great looking car. I mean, I know those narrow cars with the, with the groove tires, not not the greatest, but I just it just it just does something. I just I think they I think it just looks really nice. And that sort of silver color scheme, okay, yeah, knowing it's, it's it's all tied in with the sort of cigarette branding as well, but it's just a good looking car. What well, one thing I've noticed actually about doing these lists is that uh, you know the whole that sort of it's a cliche that if it looks right, it is right, but it really is true. Like most of the successful cars are actually neat good looking car there are there's the occasional exception but by and large you know the uh, the 1995 mclaren would not make the list of the greatest mclarens or the best looking f1 cars i'd say quite reverse um but yeah the williams list the the mclaren list we did a ferrari one last year i mean the process of doing a mercedes one very few bad looking cars that are hugely successful i would say even coming back to you know to into the modern era you look at 2014 and the hideous series of noses that were on the, the cars in that era the mercedes the most successful one pretty good looking in terms of its nose at the very least i think that 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 era really suffered he's looked back on uh, you know just watching random highlights or whatever of of that era and, uh, and it's the the high skinny rear wings but anyway that's probably possibly another podcast uh, unless you want to jump in there luke no, just to echo that point, and I think that it was it was the seventh anniversary, I believe, of the 2014 first test a few days ago, and it led to a lot of pictures resurfacing. Kev that, was that there. Awful case. That's just outright. I was actually, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I, I went the one the test at Haref. Yeah, 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 yeah. I went down to the the corner where Mark Schumacher tried to drive Jacques Villeneuve off the road in 1997 because I let's get a, let's get a report in that what are these cars sound like look like. When I, I, I volunteered, I'll go down there, I'll get, get a feel for what it's like. Two hours later, Lewis came past you on an installation lap. That, that is, that is, that is, everyone else couldn't get out of the pit lane. Kimi Raikkonen got to the horizon, the Ferrari broke down. It was, uh, it was quite difficult to, yeah, my impressions of the new breed of Formula One car are that we won't get any finishes at the first Grand Prix. So they turned it around really well, actually, to be fair. That shows the quality of the modern F1 team to be able to turn things around like that. Indeed, indeed. Well, guys, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today and discussing all things McLaren. And, of course, thanks to everybody listening along. Now, just before we go, we'd like to remind you that the latest issue of Autosport magazine came out on Thursday and will be available on the supermarket shelves and in newsagents, as well as on the doormats of subscribers. There will be a new issue of the magazine for you to pick up every Thursday, packed full of news, analysis and the usual stunning photography. And of course, if you want unlimited access to Autosport from the comfort of your home, visit autosport.com slash plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport podcast.
Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just one dollar. Text the word grade to 323232 right now. Hooked on Phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun and everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day. For more than 30 years, Hooked on Phonics has been the proven learn to read program that kids love to use. Text grade to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days guaranteed. Text grade to 323232 right now and get started for just one dollar. Text grade to 323232 now. Text grade to 323232. Sports Social Podcast Network.